0: last week, we made a promise to you, our listener. Given how the year 2020 has gone so far, what with being stuck at home and simultaneously approaching the end of a contentious election cycle through no fault of our own, we figured there'd been enough. Enough what? Enough everything, really. We'd be perfectly happy if they just rolled the year up early and put it away, acknowledging what a bad job they'd done with it. Whomever they might be. They certainly have a lot to answer for this year. Anyhow, there's been enough general stress produced to flex the Eiffel Tower, and we are loath to add any more to it just so we can do some sort of creepy, crawly, scary batch of themed episodes. If you want the really scary ones, go listen to last October's episodes, where we talked about things like ghost towns and haunted paintings. Instead, we've made a promise to you to take as our theme this month, the warm fuzzies. Things about which you can feel good and comfortable and happy. Relaxing episodes meant to warm your heart. Which is interesting, now that we come to think about it. Quite some time ago, we received a request from one of our regular listeners to talk about a particular topic they were interested in. See, it was February, and certain things were on more or less everyone's mind. At least as much as they could be, given all the problems that were at the time, merely looming on the horizon. They weren't on our minds, you understand. We're not given to those sorts of fits of emotion. At least, we think they're emotions. We're pretty sure we saw it on a list somewhere. We are, of course, talking about love potions. And it says more about the state of the internet than it does about us that it took this long to get to the topic. See, if you type love potion into the usual ubiquitous search engine, you'll get a ton of results, to be sure. Unfortunately, most of them are what we call low-quality results. Even leaving aside the fact that most of them are sketchy, highly suspect, and potentially not safe for anyone, really, they don't reflect much in the way of true or accurate information. So much as they do a bunch of info people would really like to be true. The problem is, then, separating the wheat from the chaff. Lots of folks are happy to tell you how to make modern potions, love and otherwise. But very few are anywhere near getting the historical context and actual usage out there for the general public to consume. And we're here to tell you right now that if your first inclination for finding out about potions of any sort is to turn to the so-called modern-day witch, you might be a tad disappointed. But we think it's fair to say that almost no one modern who thinks of potions and their effects gets it right these days. In fact, it's safe to say that much of what people today think about potions and their operation is a pretty romanticized version of things. You know, like the ones you read about in your favorite fantasy games and novels. The kind that start out like double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble, eye of newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and ton of dog and so on. And there are at least two things wrong with it. For one thing, that's not even the whole recipe, it's just the tiny bit you remember. And for another, it was never going to give someone else the warm fuzzies. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. When it comes to Shakespeare, he appears to have been rather fond of potions of one sort or another. The reference above comes from the Tragedy of Macbeth, of course. See, there was a lot going on in England at the time the play was written and first performed in 1606. Just three years before, a man named James had shown up in England. Thanks to being the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who was no longer allowed to rule Scotland on account of maybe having arranged to have her previous husband, James's father, Henry Stuart, murdered and his estate blown up so she could marry her lover, the man convicted of the murder and arson, also named James, he had become James VI of Scotland king. But the reason James VI was in England in the first place was because he was related to Henry Seventh, former king of England, by way of being his great-great-great-grandson. Which was how far back England had to go in order to find a new ruler in the royal line since Elizabeth I had died and left no heir. So James VI of Scotland was also James I of England. All clear now? Good. Fortunately for Shakespeare, James I slash VI liked a good play, and Shakespeare was already well known for writing such things. Even Elizabeth I had recognized his talents and patronized his plays, so it was easy enough for King James to take on the same duties. And, since the new king was Scottish, suddenly all things also Scottish became all the rage in London. They even had actual Scotsmen openly roaming the city streets. Can you imagine? the public couldn't get enough. And, never one to miss an opportunity, Shakespeare decided that a play about something Scottish would probably go over pretty well. So he set about writing one both to cash in on the current interests and as a sort of, oh, you're Scottish? What a coincidence, I've just finished a play that is also Scottish, perhaps you'll enjoy it, sort of present for King James. But Shakespeare works on several levels, as anyone who has studied his works even casually can tell you. James I had two keen interests. The first was in treason, or rather the prevention of it. See, Scottish history was full of traitors betraying their lords and kings so they could become lords and kings themselves instead. Quite reasonably, any king of Scotland was very wise to be so concerned. But James had gone one step further and taken notes about how traitors operated, and this led to his second keen interest, witches. See, witches tended to be the people Scottish traders went to in order to devise their plots against the folks in charge and get a little help in carrying out their plans. So James made what we're quite sure was a reasonable inference for the time. Namely, if I get rid of all the witches, the would-be traders will have no one to turn to for all that help and advice, and witches are much easier to find than traders are. At least for the time being so he set about having every witch he could find executed. So up walks Shakespeare with his new Scottish play, and how does it open? Why, with Macbeth, successful general, meeting a trio of the witchiest witches ever witched, who proceed to tell him that, through no effort or merit of his own, he will be right wise king of Scotland. And what happens next? Well, we'd hate to spoil it for you, but sure enough, the means to fulfill the prophecy quickly present themselves. Macbeth is, on the surface, about what happens to traitors. But, it's also about the ambition for power, and how too much ambition and too much power are bad things. It might be that Shakespeare was sneaking in a tiny warning to King James to temper whatever thirst for power he may have, and to rule with reason and compassion, rather than simply as a means to gather power to himself. Probably a warning James was already well aware of, Given what happened to his mother, but one that might have needed reinforcement in Shakespeare's estimation. In any case, a number of themes present themselves throughout the play, which is one reason it has been so popular throughout the centuries, but it certainly didn't hurt to have it in front of the king at the time. But what of this scene with the witches? What are we to make of it and their cauldron of evil? At one and the same time, Shakespeare uses it to set tone, theme, and atmosphere for the play. Double, double toil and trouble. The witches mean to do evil with their brew, which is reinforced a few lines later for a charm of powerful trouble like a hellbroth boil and bubble. They aren't in it to help anyone or to improve anyone's life, and they certainly aren't doing Macbeth any favors, but they definitely have ill intent for any and all who come by. The list of ingredients is a frightening concoction of disgusting bits of various unpleasant creatures and human body parts all of which helps set up just how unpleasant things are about to get in the rest of the play. But, the real kickers in the ingredient list are Hemlock and Yew. Both poisonous, even when not brewed up into a potion. Hemlock kills by inducing respiratory failure, and Yew kills by very swiftly causing cardiac arrest. Not only is the potion setting the mood for the evil workings of the play, but also foreshadowing the deaths to come. From then on, the play is on an inevitable slide to disaster for virtually everyone involved. But, this is not Shakespeare's only dalliance with the world of potions and poisons. In Hamlet, the king is poisoned via the ear using what is probably henbane, which contains a toxin lethal to humans in concentrated doses, though we aren't sure that the ear is a viable route of delivery. Romeo and Juliet contains the infamous sleeping draught used by Juliet to feign death and fatally mislead Romeo. And, lest you think Shakespeare was a real downer of a guy, there is a Midsummer Night's Dream in which the fairy Puck concocts a love potion using a flower called Love in Idleness, which is otherwise known as Wild Pansy. What follows is an amusing series of errors and mistakes, which serve to see all the wrong people falling in love with the first person they see, and as is typical with the use of love potions in literature, none of it goes right, at all, until the final act. And even then, you sort of have to wonder. This is, of course, typical of the use of love potions. It almost makes you wonder why anyone bothers with them when they universally go incredibly wrong every single time. So frequent is it that the web page TV Tropes has an entire section just on the use and mostly misuse of the love potion. And when you start to think about what a love potion really is, you begin to understand why there are such problems with it in literature. See, basically, a love potion, or any potion for that matter, is just an untargeted, non-specific magic spell carried around in liquid form. Just like the fantasy world Potion of Healing or Potion of Giant Strength, They're meant to work on anyone who happens to drink the potion. They're just a spell anyone can imbibe. And the love potion in particular, playing as it does with emotion and reason, is particularly ripe for abuse. Enemies become lovers, friends become rivals, and people who are in positions of disadvantage suddenly become advantaged. Don't know what we mean by that? We'll explain. One of the things about love, in whatever form it comes, is how it changes the power dynamic between two people. To understand what we mean, let's take a look at Northern Pakistan and the Yusufsai Pukhtun of Swat. In 1980, Charles Lindholm of Barnard College at Columbia University released a paper entitled Leather Workers and Love Potions. In Swat, it was once the custom to make a love potion by washing the dead body of a leather worker and getting your target to drink the resulting water. After that, they were certain to be in love with you. And while on the surface this sounds like the usual result of drinking a love potion, if from a somewhat unusual recipe, you have to look deeper to understand what is really going on here with a pukton. To start with, let's look at the entire practice. The most efficacious love magic is the water that has been used to bathe the body of a dead leather worker called a shaquel. In local legend, this filter is collected by a witch during the new moon. Mounted on a wild pig, an animal which is anathema to the Muslim puktun, the witch makes her way into the village graveyard and exhumes the corpse of a newly dead male leather worker. She hangs his body from a tree, washes it, and sells the water to women who will give it to their husbands or lovers in their tea. It is never used on a woman. Modern Pukhtun say they no longer believe in the witch on a pig aspect, but they continue to have faith in the power of the magic water, claiming that it is still actually collected, sold, and used. Rumors of disinterred leather workers are pointed to as proof of the continuation of this practice. Now, it's difficult to understand, but the reason the love potion is never used on women in Pukhtun society has to do with how their society organizes itself. And it begins with inheritance and genealogy. The basic principles of which are organized through the male line, with all sons sharing equally in the estates and property of the father. But the Puktung puts strong emphasis on the individual and separation from others. Males hold themselves apart from virtually everyone else and strive to be seen as fiercely self-reliant. Asking for or needing help are seen as signs of weakness. This puts the fathers at odds with their sons, since they've each been raised in the same way with the same values. Part of being seen as a man is self-reliance, but the sons also need to inherit the father's property in order to be seen as having achieved full manhood. The father wants no help from his sons and doesn't even wish to associate with them as this could mean others see him as weak. So what arises is a situation in which the father keeps as much distance from his sons as he can and the sons can only sit around waiting for the man to die and the opportunity to inherit his lands, since the father cannot and will not give it to them outright, as this would be seen as helping them and a sign of weakness not just on their part, but his as well, while simultaneously costing the father what is basically his ticket to manhood, all his property. Then, once the father finally does pass, All the sons, who have tried to position themselves as the most worthy inheritor while the man was alive, begin fighting amongst themselves to inherit what property they can. It's a complicated and confusing series of standards to a mind not raised in the community, but it amounts to this Men and their sons are all essentially estranged from each other, but the sons are brought up by the father to be this way, and the father is admired by the community and his sons for treating them in what is seen as the right and proper way while the sons are looked down upon until such time as they have their property and the father's legacy, and the more the father denies them these things, the more they dislike him for it. Meanwhile, women in the poktun society have, on the face of it, even less of a position and no power at all. Their husbands treat them even worse than the sons, while at the same time needing their wives to help produce these same sons. It is seen as a weakness to even have to marry. But since sons are so valued in the community for carrying on the lineage, all men want sons and therefore have to marry in order to properly fulfill their roles. And that's at least three paradoxes right off the start. It's no stretch to say that understanding the Puktun is a real struggle for someone brought up in a Western tradition. You keep asking yourself why these people can't just find a way to get along. But it's a society that simply doesn't work the way we might wish it would. Things only get more complicated from here, but we'll try to keep it as simple as we can with the understanding that this is way, way more complex than we can explain in one episode. With the father's separation from his family, with the need to remain independent and self-reliant, it falls to the wife and mother to provide love and support for the children. So where do the sons go for a father figure that can advise them or even just listen to their problems? Well, they go to the only other families that might be around, the leather workers. Leather workers in Poktoon are attached to specific families in a sort of patronage arrangement. They own no land and are not genealogically part of their society, so they are capable of operating outside of the Poketoon structure. They fulfill many roles, but among them is providing a growing boy with advice, concern, and care. But because they take on this traditionally female role, and because they own no land, the Puktoons see them as one of the lowest-ranked people in the society. They become, within the standards of the Puktoon, more effeminate, more like women. Now the thing is, if you are a Puktoon woman, you have no path to power. Almost no one needs you in order for society to function as it does. Except, in reality... Everyone needs you. Without you, there is no society to be had, because there are no children. No children means no sons, and no sons means no path of inheritance for the father's legacy. And the thing is, everyone in Pakta knows that the real power is with the women. It's one reason they are treated so poorly. To try to keep the men from having to admit that they are weak and need the women on the most fundamental basic level... And to keep the women from realizing how much control and power they really have. So, how do you, as a woman, get out from under that and fully manifest the very real power you have? Well, you do that by creating a love potion and making your husband really fall in love with you instead of simply having what amounts to a marriage of necessity. At that point, you have him in your power, and you are free to run the household and your bit of society as you see fit. And of course, you can only have them fall in love with you if you have some concoction that creates in your husband the qualities of a woman. So the leather worker, when one dies, is secretly washed in a ritual that takes his essence the one that was caring and concerned for the well-being of your sons and daughters, the man who, by your societal standards, is effeminate in getting your husband to drink it, thereby redistributing power to you and weakening him. No man would ever want his wife to drink it because there is no need. He already has all the power he wants. But every woman wants her husband to drink in order to get out from under and improve her life. And to a certain extent, this is what happens every time a love potion comes up in literature. Power changes. The commoner in love with a royal goes out and has a love potion made, looking to make the royal value them as an equal, rather than seeing them as beneath their station. Some folks use it to teach a lesson to someone who has snubbed another because of their looks. Others use love potions to sow chaos out of order. There are all sorts of reasons for the application of a love potion, but very few, if any of them, are because two people are equally valued by each other and share the same level of power. But we're left to ask, are there, or were there, ever any love potions that really worked? If you mean concoctions that engendered real love between two parties who otherwise would not have fallen in love of their own accord, No, sadly not. No amount of special rituals, secret ingredients gathered by moonlight, or tiny little vials of golden liquid slipped into a drink will make someone love you who does not already do so. Sorry, it's just not how things work. And even if they did, is that what you really want? To go through the rest of your life knowing that the person you are sharing your life with only loves you because you forced them... What kind of existence is that? Better to have nothing, if you ask us. In fact, the thing to really keep in mind with regards to love potions and their ilk is that they were most often used as an excuse. See, throughout history, especially the sort of romantic, fantastical version of history we've all become familiar with from our stories of adventure, but also the actual real history of the world, the man is allowed a certain amount of freedom that did not and in some cases still does not, accrue to the woman. One of those portions of freedom was the ability to go about your day meeting potential romantic partners to whom you were not married and sort of sowing your oats. Yes, some, even many women did and still do partake of this same activity. But society changes slowly. And in the past, the men generally got the better part of the deal they could very often do as they liked when it came to inviting people back to their apartments to look at the etchings. Etchings and chill, as it were. Which was all well and good, and in some cases even expected. Right up until the wife found out. And then you and your etchings were in trouble. So it was very handy to be able to look your beloved significant other in the eyes and claim you had no knowledge of how it was you came to be viewing the etchings with that particular person. No, really. Last thing we remember, we were in the tavern with the lads enjoying a frothing meat by the cooking fire. We swear, on our honor, you've got to believe us. We know she's probably a witch of some sort. No, seriously. We bet what she did was slip something into our drink that made us fall in love with her. Some sort of love potion. You can't blame us for that which just leaves us with one last thing to say. Sometimes the warm fuzzies are a warning sign. You've been listening to another episode of GM Word of the Week, and we very much thank you for it. We've been very happy to have you as a listener, and appreciate the time you spend listening to us tell you interesting things about interesting things. Never let it be said we don't appreciate our patrons as well. If you've enjoyed what you heard today, and liked the show as a whole, it's thanks to them that it keeps coming out on a regular basis. So thank you to our patrons on Patreon. And if you, dear listener, happen to see one in the wild, give them a firm handshake and a big smile as thanks. How will you identify them? Well, maybe they're wearing one of our shirts from Redbubble the link to which you can find, along with other ways to support the show, by going to gmwordoftheweek.com and finding the yellow banner at the top of the page. You'll be taken to our support page, where you too can find numerous ways to prevent the show from having to air commercials for non-bendy metal wallets that don't hold nearly enough of the various cards and things you collect by our age, and certainly don't sit well in any pocket at all. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey, who probably would have scored as well in potions class as he did in chemistry, where the only thing he got right was making peanut brittle. Music was provided by Blue.Sessions, located, as always, at Sessions.Blue. There's no mistaking what kind of potion I need. Caffeine. For alertness, rejuvenation.